This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's begin with a little something else. Something that we don't think enough about, but it's something that there are people who, who, who just absolutely cannot trust. And the thing that we don't think a lot about is turning on our tap and getting water from that tap. And yet we have people who live very close to the center of downtown London. And they will not drink what comes out of their tap for fear of what that could be or what it could contain. And you scratch your head and you think, wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that, that can't be a thing. But we've heard stories from people before. And tonight, you're going to be able to hear a lot of stories at the London Public Library in the Stevenson Hunt Room from 6.30 to 8.30. Because Brandon Dockstater is going to be speaking about Oneida residents and the struggles that they have trusting their drinking water or even making use of the water that comes out of their taps. We're lucky enough to have Brandon with us now. Brandon, thanks so much for being here on London Live. Hello. Brandon, talk to us about the situation as it exists now with regard to drinking water at Oneida. Okay, yeah. So, well, going to the beginning, right, the current water treatment system was constructed in 1998. And so that was prior to the tragedy in Walkerton, Ontario. And that led to a lot of significant changes in the regulations and associated treatment policies for portable water in Ontario. And so the 2006 federal protocol um, came out for drinking water in First Nations and communities. And so as of those regulations, what that means is that Oneida's water does not meet the minimum or federal provincial treatment requirements for multi-barrier safeguards and that um, the provided system um, needs to be upgraded for drinking water because it does not provide chemically assisted filtration followed by an adequate primary disinfection. So in other words, you can't trust what's coming out of your own taps. No, exactly. We're at, um, so what, what's going on is that the treatment facility uh, chlorinates our water just chlorinate for 94 minutes. Unfortunately, it's only being treated for a minute and a half before it's sent out to the distribution distribution system and into people's taps. And you're talking about a system that, like you say, was put in place in 1998. We've had a lot happen with regard to safe drinking water since 1998. Why exactly are you still sitting with something that doesn't meet minimum requirements? That's uh, that's a huge issue, right? And um, the federal government has said that they're going to eliminate all long-term boil water advisories before March of 2021. And unfortunately, our community only was able to declare our our boil water advisory in September of 2019. So we have to wait a year before we can even get on that list to start those discussions about a feasibility study and engineering and such. 
Brandon Dockstader with us on London Live, a youth leader at Oneida Nation of the Thames, and we're talking about something as simple as drinking water. Most of us can have complete confidence going up to the taps that when we turn it on, what is coming out is potable. What is coming out is safe to consume. So when we look at actually how things are being done at Oneida Nation of the Thames, where are you getting drinking water from right now? So right now, as so since from September to December of 2019, the community spent over $60,000 on providing water bottles for our community members. That includes the manpower to deliver to our elders and such, but um, that's uh, kind of what the figures are looking like right now. $60,000 for mm-hmm. three months of water. And where yeah. is that money coming from? That's coming out of the community's pocket right now. Oh, man. Yeah. And so we need to find, so in order to get our water treatment facility up to date, it's going to cost $23 million in immediate needs. And And would that be just for Oneida or would that be including other areas? Just just Oneida. Oneida, yeah. And And, have you had conversations yet about whether or not we would have government officials saying, you know, this is something that, yes, would be expensive, but it's something that has to happen. Let's do this. Have you heard anything like that? Yes. Um, the Indigenous Service Canada has come down to the community to discuss the boil water advisory, to discuss that plan. And so right now, we don't, we, we're not on the long-term boil water advisory list. So we have to wait till September to get on that list. And then you would have to wait following that, like you said. Yeah, yeah. so it's going to be three to four years before we can actually fix our water treatment facility as is. Brandon, what is life like when you can't make use of the water out of your taps to just, you know, wash off vegetables or do dishes or certainly if you're thirsty, go and get a drink? Yeah, you know, it's really hard. I, I, it's, it's not, um, as a person, like, you know, not being able to drink that water, you don't think that's how your community is. And, and, and for us to be located in an area, um, where the municipal water, um, uh, piping goes right by our community, yet we're not attached to that, that's, um, very hard for me to understand and to, um, to reconcile with. You know, like our community, um, we have a generation of children who grew up without access to clean water. Yeah, a generation now. Yeah. A generation. Yes, yes. We're talking with Brandon Dockstader, and again, bringing to light something that seems to just kind of be shoved to the side, and the idea of creating clean drinking water for everybody in Canada would seem just, yeah, that that happens. We, we live in Canada. Well, actually, if you look around, you'll find, no, that isn't the case, and it certainly isn't the case at the Oneida Nation of the Thames. Brandon, what caused you to start to speak out about this? Because, again, if you want to go and see Brandon speak more about this, he's going to be at the London Public Library in the Stevenson and Hunt Rooms, A and B, from 6.30 to 8.30 tonight, and you can hear him speak more about this. But what is it that got you kind of going in this direction well i think it goes back to even when i was younger like um when i was 12 years old we had a a a landfill put up right beside our community owned by the city of toronto and our and our community was never properly consulted on that and that 
um, there was huge concerns about the water then and what the impacts would be. And that's what got me involved in the environment field. And so right now I work for Oneida as our environment and consultation coordinator. So um, this is the work that I've been doing for for as long as then. And, um, you know, um, I'm really passionate about helping my community and getting our people to where we need to be. Brandon, what do you hope people take away from your talk tonight? Well, I'm hoping that people will learn the facts over the myths. They'll realize that this isn't just a problem that that happens in uh, First Nations communities way up north. This is here in in southwestern Ontario. And our community isn't the only community that isn't able to get um, the services that it needed from time ago. So I'm hoping that, that people take that away and that we can create some local action and also um, create a short, short-term solution to, to um, the current needs. Well, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for being as vocal as you are. And again, tonight, 6.30 to 8.30, Stevenson Hunt Rooms A and B at the London Public Library. Brandon, continue doing what you're doing, okay? Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. That's Brandon Dockstader. Wow. I mean, as Brandon pointed out, this is something that we often write off as being, oh, yeah, well, that's just a problem of different areas in the northern part of the province, and it's because there are no roads attached. And you can create whatever scenario you want in your mind in order to think, well, this, this is why this would be. But this has been going on at Oneida for a long, long time. Their water treatment facility is put in in 1998. We have the Walkerton tragedy that follows. We then have the fallout from the Walkerton tragedy, and we have the upping of restrictions and the upping of how we should do things. And then, then what? Then, well, yeah, but it's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to cost $23 million in order to do this. So they're not even on the list at this point in order to you know, have have consideration to make some changes. Heading into the month of February, a new stamp was unveiled by Canada Post, and it had members of a hockey team on it, and you could look closely at that stamp, and you could see that this was not the Toronto Maple Leafs from last night. Nobody was wearing a helmet. Nobody was using any kind of graphite anywhere. Nobody was wearing skates that cost $750. But what they were were members of the Colored Hockey League. And this stamp was part of an initiative to bring to light some of the stories maybe we don't know about our own past as part of Black History Month. And we have an opportunity to learn more about that right now because Craig Smith is the president of the Black Cultural Society of Nova Scotia where this stamp was actually unveiled and where, in the Maritimes, the Colored Hockey League actually played. Craig, welcome to London Live. Great to speak with you. Oh, uh, happy to be here. Let's kind of look back, even before Black History Month began, there was a stamp that was unveiled that some people may have put on envelopes by now in mailing things through Canada Post, and that stamp kind of brings up something that many people in this country know nothing 
about. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that stamp was like, and then we'll get into the story that comes from it? Sure. The stamp itself depicts uh, a hockey team uh, standing in front of uh, a cup. Um, they're members of the Colored Hockey League of the Maritimes, actually the Halifax Eureka, uh, that were in a league that was in existence as far back as uh, 1895. So, you know, for, for many Canadians who really, um, you know, their really their, their really recollection of a black person playing hockey would be Willie O'Ree in the National Hockey League in 1958. There were actually black folks here in Atlantic Canada and in Nova Scotia in particular that were skating on the, you know, in, in, on the ponds and lakes and in some cases in arenas um, back then. Teams like, you mentioned the Eurekas, but the Stanleys. The Eurekas, the Stanleys, the, uh, the Truro Sheiks, the Victoria Jubilees. Uh, you know, there were uh, a number of different teams. Mossbacks. That's a name we need to bring back into any sports. The Mossbacks. <laughs> that's, that's got a good connotation to it. I like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, just, it's, you know what? It's a great piece of Canadian history that um, has long been either overlooked or, or, or not heard of. And I think that the stamp just helps to kind of bring it back to the forefront of hopefully the Canadian public's uh, mind and that folks, you know, look to dig a little bit more to learn a little more. And that's it. Craig Smith joining us, president of the Black Cultural Society. And Craig is located in Nova Scotia as well. But you mentioned going back as far as 1895. Why is it, do you think, that we don't know much about the Colored Hockey League that goes back and, and actually predates the National Hockey League? Well, I, I think a couple of reasons, Scott, but I think one of them, realistically, when we consider, okay, so they were in existence from then until around 19, uh, 18, uh, 1925 in their votes, and they start to dissipate by, and I think are gone by 1930. Um, you had the First World War. You had uh, men that, that left to become members of the number 2 Construction Battalion. Uh, then you had men that came back overseas, and, and uh, most of the jobs they could get were, were labor jobs. Um, and in a lot of cases, uh, porters on the railroad, which meant they were then leaving Nova Scotia or they weren't there on a constant basis because they had to work as the trains ran, um, which would mean that there weren't as many players around in the league. So I think that, you know, limited employment opportunities led to uh, uh, some of the uh, some of the ways in which it, it kind of dissipated just because of them weren't there. Why is it lost on us? Well, I think as succeeding generations came along, um, hockey wasn't, and hockey became somewhat of an expensive sport to play, uh, there were less and less players out there. Um, and there weren't as many young people looking to get into what were segregated leagues at those times anyway. I mean, we know that, you know, in the National Hockey League, it wasn't until 58 that Willie O'Ree was able to play. So you had players that were coming up in the Quebec League and things, and some that were Nova Scotian, um, that still couldn't bust that, that, that ceiling that, that'll stop them from getting into professional hockey as black individuals. And so I think as time kind of went on, it became a lost story. Um, and like so many others, I mean, really, if, you know, it's really just been since the uh, the free pardon that was signed for Viola Desmond back in uh, 2010 that kind of propelled her to the point where people know who she is nationally. But yet, you know, she took her stance against segregation in Nova Scotia nine years before Rosa Parks uh, did in Montgomery, Alabama, and yet everybody knows Rosa Parks. So there's those pieces of Canadian history that haven't been included in the the, the uh the textbooks in the classrooms that haven't been talked about um, throughout the general public. And it's kind of been kind of left as a segregated piece of history. And therefore it's, it's been overlooked for long periods of time. And it's only within probably the last 25 or 30 years that we've started to see a lot of more of our history uh, in books 
people talking about it, documentaries, things of that nature, which has kind of given us a resurgence um, about things that realistically, I guess, when we think about it, we stop and think about it, stuff that we really all should know as Canadians because it is Canadian history. But for those reasons, we don't know. Exactly. We're talking right now with the president of the Black Cultural Society, Craig Smith, and we're talking about the Colored Hockey League, which didn't have a schedule and had to rely, you mentioned it, Craig, on on a lot of outdoor rinks. And and here's some of that perspective that we need to have in schools. We need to be teaching people. We had people, hockey players in this case, but people in general in Canada who weren't permitted to enter arenas. And that's why they couldn't play there. That's why they were playing on ponds. And you tell that to kids today and they kind of look at you and think, what do you mean they weren't allowed in? But that was that was fact. Well, well, exactly. Even when Willie O'Ree uh, became a member of the Boston Bruins, there were places he went in the U.S. where he wasn't allowed to stay in the same uh, hotel as the other white players were. So, you know, segregation has been a part of our existence in North America since since we got here, um, and, and we've come a long way uh, since then. Um, but we don't necessarily always talk about some of the more unsavory parts of our history, and I think we really only appreciate where we are now, and we get a... a finer understanding of where we need to be by taking a look back. And well that's why I'm so glad that you actually have invited me on to talk about this, because I think it helps, you know, the more minds we can broaden, the more people we can tell the stories to, the more folks that learn or, or, or get to know, uh, maybe the more digging that goes on as well, and it becomes part and parcel of, of learning for everybody. And that's another part of it. You know, we've got so much information out there and, you know, having information about this, next thing you know, somebody's looking up and saying, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm now going to Google Colored Hockey League. And then, well, I don't know what segregation is. Well, I'm going to learn about that. And, and it snowballs as so many things do. When you look at, at Black History Month and, and how it's presented now, what impact do you feel it does have? Well, I think it gives, I think it gives folks that may not look at black history any other time throughout the year, that one opportunity that they can. Um, so I think it's kind of got a, a, a two-pronged approach to it, good and bad. One, it, it, it allows folks to recognize that there is one month of the year when they are going to, you know, hopefully um, examine and expose themselves to, to another culture, in this case, black culture in our country. Um, the only negative part to that sometimes can be that that means that 11 other months of the year, we don't have to look at it at all. And for me, it becomes, it needs to be part and parcel of what we do when we're looking at everything throughout the year. And, and I know it's easier sometimes to say that in the context of schooling, but in the context of education, if you're in a music class and you're looking at talking about music, then obviously maybe you're going to be sampling something by Oscar Peterson or you're going to be talking about uh, the world-famous contralto Portia White, who came from Nova Scotia, or even Misha Brugger-Gosman, who's an opera singer who came from New Brunswick. If you're going to be talking about um, military history, then William Hall, the first black Victoria Cross recipient uh, from Canada who's from Hansport, might you may talk about, or the number two construction battalion. So there's ways to weave in um, through the tapestry of what you're teaching other cultures so that folks get a, a broader picture when they're, uh, when they're looking at our history. And it, and it starts to be looked at as a collective as opposed to kind of like a patchwork. Craig, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Craig Smith, president of the Black Cultural Society, of Nova Scotia, where they had unveiled a stamp honoring the Colored Hockey League that stretched all the way back to 1895. And it's one of those things that we haven't heard a lot about.
And yet, it's something that that becomes a, a big part of our history in that it gets young people to look back and look at the treatment of individuals. You know, those who are those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. That old line, but to look and say, well, you know, a lot of these games were held on frozen ponds. Why was that? Well, because a lot of the players or players couldn't get into a lot of the arenas that existed at that time. And that's because they were black. And for sure, you look at somebody today who is under the age of 20, and you tell them that story, and unless they've actually read up about it, they're going to look at you and say, what do you mean they weren't allowed in? What do you mean they couldn't get in? You know, there was a door, right? Yeah, there was a door, but they weren't allowed in. Because of segregation. And that existed in Canada as well as the United States. We always hear about U.S. segregation, but there were issues here as well. And so you want to make sure that people know those stories. So thanks to Craig for joining us to help us tell those stories. Homelessness is an issue in this city. And you can say, well, it's it's been... A problem always. It has been. But the numbers are backing it up that it's more of a problem now. So what do you do about it? Well, there are two things that you can do. Actually, I guess three things you can do. One is nothing, which isn't the right choice. Number two is temporary housing or temporary situations. And in a way, we have this with shelters and the Salvation Army. And the goal ultimately is permanent housing, but it's not easy. There isn't enough of it. And you can't just say to someone, all right, well, here's here's your key. You move in on Friday. It doesn't work that way. So this is being looked at by the Community and Protective Services Committee today. And earlier today, we had a chance to talk with the manager of homelessness prevention with the city of London, Craig Cooper. And one of the things that we talked about to begin with was a Conestoga hut. These are used in other cities, some of them out west. And what they are is something to assist people who find themselves homeless. And we asked Craig if he could describe, first off, what a Conestoga hut is and how it could possibly have an effect. Sure. So uh, a Conestoga hut is a is a small type of um, unit. It, it's under around 60 square feet, um, and it, it's in line with what you would normally think of as sort of those um, traditional Wild West wagons. And it's, it's basically one of those without a wheel, without wheels. Um, they're made of uh, you know various materials um, that allow uh, for some um, I guess uh, insulation and really it, it allows for an individual to have a, a space that they could shut a door, lock the door, and uh, and have some privacy. Hmm. Okay. And in terms of making use of these, where does this sit for the city of London? Is it something that you see as as being a, a tangible solution? Something that we need a pilot project for? How do you see it? Yeah. So I think what we what we do at the city here is is we're obviously looked and our focus on long term permanent housing stability. And so any way we can get a client to achieve long term housing stability, that's what we're trying to do. So um, Conestoga Huts offer uh, an opportunity to respect um, you know choice for an individual around different housing options. Um, we are looking at a number of different types of ways to support individuals. Uh, talking about choice, trying to understand uh, what 
individuals that are experiencing homelessness and unsheltered homelessness are looking for. Uh, obviously, there's challenges with any kind of housing option. You look at building codes, zoning bylaws, um, you know, supports really are, are really the key here. We wouldn't want to create any kind of a pilot project that isn't properly supported. And then so you look at, so resources, right? Is, is this something that a pilot project that would be viable or do we continue to can put all our efforts into um, focusing on supporting people to get permanently housed? So I think those are some of the conversations we'll be having tonight uh, at our CAPS meeting and, and we'll sort of see what, uh, what the councillor's suggestions are moving forward. Craig Cooper joining us, Manager of Homeless Prevention with the City of London. As we talk about Conestoga Huts, as Craig describes, kind of like a covered wagon minus the wheels, but it's a place you can go, you can lock the door. How would these be managed? Have you heard from any other cities that make use of them? Yeah, so we've done some research around what happens in Vancouver, uh, in Seattle, sort of the more fairer climate weather areas. And a lot of times they are uh, aligned with various other supports for the individual. So they're not just a, a community out in the middle of nowhere. They are uh, aligned with um, housing support workers, uh, you know, addictions, mental health, any any kind of trauma support workers, and are really focused on being that stepping stone. It's not a permanent type housing. It is very transitional in nature, and it, um, you know, is, is really one level up above uh, what we would see as a tent out on the street. And then how do you have people go into them? Do, do they apply for them in some way? How, how would that work? Yeah, so again, we haven't thought through that. We have a coordinated access system here uh, in, in London that we're implementing, and that is really focusing on, like I say, on, on you know apartments that become available and finding people that longer-term permanent housing. Um, we do have transitional rooms at shelters that we do get people into as to stabilize and to, to assist with some of that shorter-term conversation so that we, we can get sort of what their housing outcomes need to be. Um, this would fit in there if, 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 you know, the council wants to move forward with a, a pilot project, this would fit in there. We would figure out what does that look like. It would be in accordance with our coordinated access system. And like I say, it really needs to be connected with other supports and services that are already existing. So whether that's a shelter, whether that's some of our existing resting spaces or some other agencies that are providing the services that the people that would be utilizing these spaces would um, would be able to access. And so for us, it, it, it just takes it up that, um, you know, it gives somebody that, a bit of a more permanency than what they might have with a tent. And it does allow an opportunity for somebody to, like I say, lock a door, uh, have some protection for some of their belongings, things like that. If you look at other solutions that may be discussed tonight, anything else you expect to have come up? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. We we do look at a lot of different things. We've looked at what the City of Toronto has done with their larger sprung structures. We've looked at um, uh, buses. We've, we've, we've heard about some mobile buses going on in Ottawa and Toronto that kind of drive around in cold weather to give uh, individuals that are experiencing unsheltered homelessness an option to stay. Um, what we've really focused on here in the City of London are what we call these resting spaces. And so we currently have 20 right now. Uh, and if Council, uh, you know, is endorsed through the budget and if they approve it in March 2nd, we'd be looking at operational 40 spaces through our core area action plan and so what we're seeing and what we're seeing with the turnaway data from shelters is that that pretty much um, meets our need at this point but again um, providing other options and providing choice for individuals is something we're always open and, and looking to consider it's just a function of managing resources right where we have a pot of money that we have to manage and our pie of money and um, anything we do along these kinds of uh pilots or things like that does in some degree take away uh, focus or or, or, um, other resources from potential long-term stabilization for individuals.
Craig Cooper with us, manager of homelessness prevention here in the city of London. Craig, as a, a final thing, when you look back and, and kind of see numbers or you get feedback from people who are homeless right now and, and dealing with that, how is, is the, the issue, you think, compared with years ago? How, how are things now? So we're seeing, I would say, a significant increase in our unsheltered homelessness. I think we've seen um, significant uh, doubling of that population over the last three years. We we know we're in a housing crisis and homelessness crisis where we're seeing the rental rates being uh, unaffordable and unattainable for individuals. So people just need more more help in a lot of cases, right? And so we're working through different various projects and options around, is it a rent supplement? Is it, you know, part of the solution is creating more affordable, attainable housing? And again, when we talk affordable housing, affordable to what, right? So there's the affordability need for um, people that are living on, you know, fixed incomes and social assistance. And then there's affordability for your young professionals and people that are just getting into, you know, coming out of university and getting into the rental market. So affordability is really based on each person's perspective. And in order to solve a crisis like this, you do have to provide additional units and additional resources across that spectrum of affordability. Craig, thanks for the time today. Yeah, you're very welcome, Mike. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. That is Craig Cooper. Manager of Homelessness Prevention with the City of London. So a lot of things being talked about, but at this stage, we're not far enough along to say, okay, well, if you got a Conestoga hut, which has a door on it, which would lock, which does provide some insulation, here's how they would be used. We don't have that kind of information just yet. Or, more importantly, and here's the question that will come up, where are they going to be placed? Because everybody will want to know, well, where is this going to be? Does it wind up looking like a fancier tent city? Is that something that we can accommodate anywhere in the downtown? How many of these things are going to be there? So we don't have those answers yet, but we'll see what the reaction is to the Community and Protective Services Committee tonight to at least the idea, and then maybe even next week we can look into Seattle and Vancouver and how things have worked out there to try and determine how useful they've been and how they kind of make use of Conestoga huts. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.